The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now to Leviticus chapter 4, and you'll find that if you would, and then put your finger in Hebrews chapter 13. And we have two readings in the scriptures uh, this evening that are quite long, so that might shorten the exposition a little bit, but we have no worries about that. We are going to hear from the Word of God, and we can take all the Sunday evenings that we need to go through this very, very important part of scripture. In fact, uh, this the sermons on chapter 4, I believe I've, I've, I've counted, I've uh, figured six sermons to get uh, through this very, very important offering. Uh, recently, I heard a rousing sermon from a preacher. The title of his sermon was, How to Preach Without Helping Anybody. And his main point was that if a preacher wants to be hermeneutically correct, then the subject that he chooses must be found in the text that he reads. And he said there are too many... Too much preaching where a preacher reads the text and then the sermon that he preaches has nothing to do with the sermon that he's about to preach. Well, that, that is a problem. But I liked another comment that he made also. He said that he liked to read a lot of scripture uh, in his sermons. And he said that was just in case that if the sermon is a flop, then nobody could complain that they didn't get the word. So when we read the Word of God, uh, our words will fail. God's Word never fails. So this certainly will not hurt us to read a long portion of Scripture. Uh, conversely, I read another article by a preacher very near to the same time, and he said that preachers ought not to use very much Scripture with their sermons. And this fellow happened to be a seminary professor. And my comment about that, there is a man who's educated beyond his intelligence. We don't want to do that, so we're, we're not afraid of long scripture readings, even though I don't often do this. But we do want to look here in the Word of God, and we are sure God's Word is never going to fail us. And so if this much scripture hurts you, you probably needed the beating anyway. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 4 and verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood, and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. I'll stop there for just a minute as we read on. Every, every line here almost has symbolism in it. This is why there's so much to, 
to consider when we talk about this particular offering. Verse number 8, And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. As it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering, and the skin of the bullock, and all his flesh with his head, and with his legs, and inwards, and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place, where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall bring the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood, and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. And he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, that is, in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take all his fat from him, and burn it upon the altar. And he shall do with the bullock, as he did with the bullock for a sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. And he shall carry forth the bullock without the camp, and burn him as he burned the first bullock. It is a sin offering for the congregation. When a ruler hath sinned, and done somewhat through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord his God, concerning things which should not be done, and is guilty, or if his sin, wherein he hath sinned, come to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand upon the head of the goat, and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and shall pour out his blood at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all his fat upon the altar as the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall make an atonement for him as concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. And if any one of the common people sin through ignorance, where he doth somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and be guilty, or if his sin which he hath sinned come to his knowledge, and he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a female without blemish, for his sin which he hath sinned. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering, and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take of the blood thereof with his finger, and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. And he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat is taken away from off the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now I'll stop there for just a minute. Let's not confuse peace offerings, 
with sweet, the sweet savor, with non-sweet savor, we'll talk in just a minute. So I just want you to notice that it says sweet savor in there, but we're going to talk about something else. Verse 32, and if you bring a lamb for a sin offering, he shall bring in a female without blemish, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they killed the burnt offering. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. And he shall take away all the fat thereof as the fat of the lamb is taken away from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar according to the offerings made by fire unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for his sin that he hath committed and it shall be forgiven him. Now I want you to go back to verse number 12 just a moment before we go to Hebrews. Leviticus 4 verse 12. Even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. Now in, is everybody still with me here? Nobody's fainted from reading I hope. Um, We want to look now at Hebrews 13 verses 10 to 13. Hebrews 13 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go, therefore, go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. I wanted to read those scriptures together so you would be able to see in Leviticus chapter 4 that we have a definite connection here with this offering and what's written in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Now our subject is the Old Testament sacrifice and I do hope that over these past few weeks that our study has been helpful and I think that we must be helped because our purpose is to give us a, a greater understanding of the a clear understanding of the work of Christ and his redemption for lost sinners. And I believe that these things really ought to be of profound interest to the people of God. Uh, I know that all of us have a common problem, that we read the Bible and there are lots of places that we don't understand. And there are, there are sections of Scripture that are often preached, but then there are other sections that aren't often preached, and perhaps you have no idea what they mean, you've never heard them, because preachers tend to stay with things that they know, common themes, and even preachers sometimes don't want to get into the harder parts of Scripture and just actually get out of their comfort zone. And then there are some Christians who read the Bible and they just skip the hard parts. Don't bother to read that, and if they do read them, there's no investigation and they don't really care to understand what it means. I doubt that there's any of us who doesn't think that Leviticus is very hard to understand. Anybody here want to raise your hand and say, I get all this perfectly. I mean, this is, this is not a problem at all. No, all of us have a problem with this. But it's in these harder places of Scripture that when we take time to learn this with careful examination, the Lord helps us to dig these things out, and out of that comes these vast unknown treasures about Christ, the work that he did for us, and we see it in these Old Testament types and figures, and in that there's just a new world of understanding that's open. Uh, Bible doctrine 
tends to explode from the pages of Scripture when the Holy Spirit begins to shine the light on them. I, I, I was just marveling tonight as I was having a conversation with someone how, how folks have, have really found profound new interest in the Word of God. People that have been in church for years that find new interest when we begin to really explore the depths of God's Word. And I was talking to Jason a moment ago, and he was telling me about being in the, in the uh, young people's class over here and hearing the young people who can talk about predestination and election and, and uh, redemption and, and Bible doctrines like many adults can do. And it's just a wonderful thing that, that uh, our young people are, are learning these things. But I've tried to highlight different doctrines that we believe and how they logically flow out of these symbols in the Old Testament when they're rightly understood. The foundation for our doctrines, uh, things that we teach, just are, are come alive and they are confirmed by what we read in the Old Testament. Now tonight we're going to begin a study of the fourth offering, which is the sin offering. And this is the one that you are most familiar with. Even though, as I said this morning, you're not even, you don't even know that you're familiar with it. I mean, you may not know technical terms and things such as that. You don't know what this may have been called. You don't know the order in which this sacrifice was made. You don't know how it differed from other offerings. You might not know the structure of it. You don't know differences in symbolism from the others. But this is the offering that you were sensitive to when you first recognized that you needed to be saved from your sins. You didn't know it, but this is the offering that caught you and reeled you into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we've just completed the study of, of three offerings given in order in the first three chapters of Leviticus. That's the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. These are sweet, savor offerings. And surprisingly, there's none of them that deals with sin, or at least they don't speak about sin Directly, These are not offerings offered for sin, but the sweet savor offerings, as we've discussed, this is about devotion, it's about perfection, about holy living and sanctification and communion. All the things that we lack, but are found in the perfect, unblemished life of Christ. This is the life of Christ lived out in such a way that he could be qualified to be a sacrifice for our sins. And in these offerings, we see the Son of Man, that is the sweet savor, we see the Son of Man in his holy life before he went to the cross. But now we turn our attention to the last two offerings, and these are non-sweet savor. And these were given because of sin. There are two of them, the sin offering and the trespass offering. And that sounds the same, but these are different. Sin is dealt with in separate ways in critical ways, and these are two offerings that must be kept separate. There's a distinction between them, and they cover two different issues of sin. Non-sweet savor means that the sacrifice is accepted by God, but it's repulsive. Accepted, but repulsive. It is non-sweet savor. And as you remember, savor has to do with smell. Not the sacrifice actually smells bad, but in a metaphorical sense, this is, a, this is a bad thing. It's a smell that turns away. So to God, this is an accepted offering, but is repulsive to him. And that's shown in these scriptures in a very, very graphic way. 
Now, in previous studies, we, we've noted that there are overlapping symbols in the offerings. The same is true here. The purpose of an activity is repeated. That necessi- uh, necessitates the repetition of some of things that we've already discussed. What I'm going to do is try to limit things that we've already discussed. You've learned those and hopefully don't need to go back over those again. So we're going to concentrate on differences. And these are notable and significant differences. And some of these, when very carefully considered, uh, folks, others really, they ought to bring tears to your eyes. And I want you to think about, when we talk about the, the sacrifice, that we're, get your mind off of animals, animals being sacrificed, and let's put our minds totally upon Christ. That there's no one who experienced what Christ went through. You might not retain all of this information. You might not know how to explain it. But you should remember as much as you can and study as much as you need to because the doctrines that we're going to talk about here will surface again in the New Testament. Now, what I'm about to tell you next may surprise you. um, And I promise that you haven't thought of it. That is, unless I've already told you in a previous message. I don't remember if I did or not. But this may surprise you that in 2,500 years of human existence prior to what we're reading in the book of Leviticus with the law, there was no such thing as a sin offering. Many sacrifices were made through all the years from Abel to the time of the Exodus, but none of those were sin offerings. By the time we get to the 11th chapter of Genesis and the Tower of Babel, sacrifice was perverted, Many sacrifices were made, but there was no heathen culture that ever made a sacrifice as a sin offering. And still today, across the world, in all religions, Christianity is the only one that conceives of a sin offering. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Job for a minute. Uh, Some of you might doubt my accuracy on this point. And you might think I've lost my mind when I say this, but uh, in the book of Job, we can see this, that Job probably lived about the time of Abraham. That would be in that 2,500 years previous to the giving of the law. And Job was a righteous man. God said there's nobody like him who feared God and turned away from evil. And in the fifth verse of the first chapter, Job made a precautionary sacrifice for his children. And I want you to notice the language in verses 4 and 5, Job chapter 1. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, in the end of that fifth verse, Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, you say, well, here we see it. Uh, Job is making a sin offering. His children may have cursed, and so he makes a sin offering. But no, this is not a sin offering according to the law. Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned. And I want to show you why that may be there. Not tonight. But as we go through these six sermons, I want to show you why that maybe shows that could not be a sin offering that Job gave. So you want to hold on to that thought. And then you'll also notice that it says he offered burnt offerings. All the offerings made to the prior, uh, prior to the giving of the law fall into this category of burnt offerings. That is, of 
sweet savor offering. So these reflect the sweetness of Christ's life as he satisfied God. But in the sin offering, there's judgment. And in that offering, there's confession, and there's bloodshed, and there's sin atoned. Now, the sin offering is non-sweet savor because of the requirements of the worst being done to the Savior. And in the words of an English divine, he said, Sin is indeed here preeminently shown to be exceedingly hateful, exceedingly evil before God. Yet it is also shown to imperfectly met by the sacrifice, perfectly born, perfectly judged, perfectly atoned for. Now to occupy the rest of our time this evening, I want to examine this first point, and I won't finish it tonight, but our first point is the order of the offerings. Now we followed the text just as it reads, chapter by chapter. Chapter 1 is burnt offering. Chapter 2 is meal offering. Chapter 3 is peace offering. Now in chapter 4, it's the sin offering. And then in chapter 5 is the trespass offering. And that is the order of the institution. First, there are sweet savor offerings. And then there are the non-sweet savor offerings. That's the order of institution. But that is not the order of application. Now let's turn back to Exodus 29. Moses gave the instructions for building the tabernacle and all of its furnishing. That's found in the previous chapters. And then in the 29th chapter, he turns his attention to the consecration of priests that would serve in the tabernacle. Now, in, in the picture that you're going to see on the screen, you see Moses consecrating the priest by pouring the oil of anointing upon Aaron's head. And then Aaron and his sons, they're anointed, and then a bullock was taken, and then the priest put his hands on the heads of the bull, head of the bullock. And then this is what we read in verse number 11. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Then verse number 14. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung, thou shalt burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. So the first offering that was made before any other offering is a sin offering. Now likewise, if you go back to Leviticus in chapter 9, the first eight chapters finish out with all the institution of sacrifices, and then in the ninth chapter in verse 2, the first offering is made, and that is a sin offering. And he said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish. And offer them before the Lord. Verse number 7, we see this again. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go into the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make an atonement for thyself and for the people and offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And then in verse number 8, Aaron begins to follow these instructions. Aaron therefore went unto the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. So the first thing that happens is the sin offering, and then proceeds to the other sacrifices. Now, in our experience of coming to Christ, we don't think, first of all, of his life. It's not normal for anyone to think of the perfect life of Christ before they learn of his death. Now, the necessity of Christ's life is a theological point that we learn later. We learn why it's so important that Christ live a perfect life and why that's necessary for atonement. And, and this, this was demonstrated in the forum class a few weeks ago when I asked this question, 
which is most important? Is it the life of Christ or the death of Christ for our salvation? Which one of those is the most important? The usual response that we get is it is the death of Christ that is the most important. But his death doesn't have any value unless his life was perfect without sin. So the answer that you get from most people, it's the death. And that's because our first comprehension and apprehension of Christ is his death for sin. I doubt that there are very many soul winners that give very much attention to the life of Christ when they give someone the gospel. Because we know in the gospel, 1 Corinthians says that uh, this is the gospel where Paul says how that Christ died for our sins. And as you read that, when he gives a definition of the gospel, he doesn't say anything at all about the life of Christ. That's not an oversight on Paul's part. His purpose in 1 Corinthians 15 was not to expound all the particulars of the way, ways that Christ saves us, and those ways are many. But Paul's argument is to head for the resurrection. And that's the formula that we always follow, that we bring people to the law, we show them that they're sinners, and then we start talking about what? The death of Christ. The death of Christ for sin. So as I, as I said in the beginning of the message, even though you might not know the terms, you did know this, according to the New Testament, there is a sin offering, and that's the first thing that you learn. That's the first thing that you grab hold of, and you apprehend in your understanding of Christ. So how does a new convert receive Christ? He receives him through the death of the cross, and that's the thing that always stands out first. And then, before we can bring ourselves as an offering to God, as Romans chapter 12 says, what happens? Well, we have to be justified first. We have to have this sin offering applied to us. We must have the blood of Christ applied. And we can't reverse that order. Because sin has to be removed before we can come to God. And so the priest would offer a sin offering for themselves before they've been made acceptable to offer sacrifices for the people. And we're going to rehearse that whole thing in a more detail uh, in another sermon. But the main point that I want to get across now, that our attraction to Christ begins with his death. He saves us by his death, and then later we learn that the life of Christ is equally important. So when we talk about the applicational order of the sacrifices, we're taking a look at that from man's point of view. From our point of view... A sin offering needs to be made first. But God has a different viewpoint. And that's why the institution of the sacrifices begin with sweet savor. Now you've got to stay with me on this. I hope you're getting it. But let's think about this for a minute. For Christ to offer himself for our sins, first, he has to live a perfect life. Before the cross... His life has to be proved valuable enough to be an acceptable payment for sin. To be a substitute, there can't be any sin in him. Now, when we talk about the life of Christ, we, we often think too lightly of the requirement that Christ must be without sin. I mean, we state this, Christ lived the perfect life, and we talk about that glibly as not thinking about what the monumental effort that it must have been for Christ to live without sin. I mean, do we really understand how impossible that was? For 33 years, not a single, solitary, tiniest, imperceptible morsel of spiritual failure was in Christ. Now, can you fathom that? Not an idle moment, 
not an impure thought crossed his mind, much less did he act on one. And that's just astounding. When you know, when you're sitting right there in a church pew, something unclean might go across your mind. Now, you might not sit and think about it. You might dwell on, not dwell on that. But an unclean thought will come in, and maybe you'll spend just that split second entertaining it while you're listening to the preaching of the Word of God. Now, it's sad, but sometimes there are temptations in the church building that happens. I'm not going to give you the details of this, but I remember a few years ago, I was standing here preaching, and there was an incident that happened right over here on the front row that was mind-boggling. And I was caught off guard. I stumbled at it while I was preaching. And that was one area of the church I dared not look at for the rest of my sermon because I couldn't concentrate on what I was going to say. Things like that happen in a place of worship, and you know that it's a thousand times out there worse out there in the world. There are so many things that cross your mind every single day that affect your thoughts. And it's not just those things. There, there are things that we don't even realize sometimes are sin. Only later do we learn that it's a sin. And then, on top of that, there are things that we fail to do that we should do. The Bible calls those sins of omission. That's sin as well. A few weeks ago, I announced a change in our Sunday morning service. The call to worship is to begin at 11 o'clock. Everybody needs to be in their places to begin. About that time, my first day, as I announced that, about that time, Jim and Nancy walked in. And it was either an angel from heaven or a demon from hell said to me, that's a perfect example. And so I commented on that. Now, I'm going to tell you that Jim and Nancy Andrews are as fine a Christians as I've met in all my 40 years of ministry. I don't know a couple that has been a bigger supporter, as grateful for the teaching of God's Word. They are outstanding people. And there are not too many that are like them that I would be able to make a joke at their expense and they wouldn't be offended. But Jim was very, very gracious about that. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Jesus never would have done what I did. I was standing in the pulpit. Jesus never would have done what I did. He didn't mind offending people. Religious people were offended all of the time about what he said. He didn't mind that. He didn't care if truth offended people, but he would never offend anyone by making a joke at their expense. So standing right here in the pulpit, talking about the call to worship the Lord our God, I did the wrong thing. And those things come out of my mouth just as automatically as the next breath. Will I ever do that again? Probably. You know me. So these are tough things. Even standing in the pulpit, we can do that. Sometimes my mouth runs ahead of my brain. And you know what happens to you as well. Not Jesus. Not a time. Never a time. Not even something as small as you can think of was a problem for Jesus. Then while I'm in the confession mode tonight, I have to confess preacher pride. There is some of that. I like compliments. Who doesn't like compliments? When somebody says, oh, that was a good sermon, I like that. Hopefully not enough to steal glory from God, but preachers like compliments. Um, I was, uh, just to throw this in, I was uh, reading something the other day that I thought was pretty good. Uh, it said, when you compliment the preacher, don't just say that's a good sermon. Tell him why it was a good sermon. What is it that was in that sermon that was specially for you, that you got out of it? 
Now, I, I like everybody that says that's a good sermon, but it's really nice when some, you know, you said something that really taught me something today. And I have people that say that many times. You really taught me something, something I hadn't thought about before. So when you tell the preacher, that's a great sermon, well, let's say, well, what was it that was in that sermon? I like compliments. Brother Steve gave me a compliment this morning going out the door. He said, that was a great introduction to your sermon. Now, I had to think for just a minute. Because what did he mean by that? He liked the introduction? What did he mean? Well, he meant, I said the whole sermon was an introduction to the series that we're doing. I didn't catch that. And I thought I was standing there thinking, what was it about the introduction that he liked? I just don't know. But uh, I appreciate those compliments very much. But these are just typical, trivial things that we don't think twice about. But not once, not once in 33 years did a trivial thing trip up Jesus. And that's because the tiniest infraction fractures perfection. And there are no minor sins to God. Jesus had to be perfect. He's had to be perfect in his humanity just as he is in his deity. So did you ever wonder why Jesus didn't come down and assume flesh as a fully grown man? Why didn't Jesus just come down... Go through three years of public ministry, do everything well, never commit a sin, and then die. Would three years have been enough to suffice? No. Jesus had to go through every human experience. He had to go through infancy. He had to go through his childhood, to teenager, to a young man, to a, an adult young man or man in his prime without committing a sin. Can you imagine a teenager without sin? I can't, I can't even think of that. I mean, that's like asking a supercomputer, why? Everything's short circuits and it just doesn't work. Blow all your fuses to think a teenager that would not sin? God tested Jesus to the limits. And right down to the very last hour of his life when he was beaten and unjustly accused, he never lashed back with a word of hatred. Would we blame him if he did? No, we wouldn't blame him. Hitting back is reasonable to us, but it's unreasonable to God, and God would not accept it. So Jesus had to be proved in this entire pressure cooker of his life and emerge from that completely unscathed. Not even the tiniest hairline crack was acceptable. Now we think about that, or you should think about that next time... You hear me or even you casually speak of his perfect life. So to God, this has to come first. It's the sweet savor offering that enables him to be the non-sweet savor in the sacrifice of his death. So the sweet savor of his life precedes the ignominious death of Christ. That's the contrast. So you find thousands of people died on crosses, didn't they? But never a man like that man died on a cross. So the institutional order of the sacrifices shows that sweet savor comes before non-sweet savor. The application is different. Sin has to be addressed first when we look from man's viewpoint. And then we enter into the sweetness of Christ's life. And so we see all of this is, is pictured in selection and inspection of animals used in sacrifice. As far as the eye can determine, every animal selected is spotless, no blemishes, no cuts, no bruises, no rough patches of hair or skin, no sores, no blisters. Only the best of the very best can be offered. 
And then we might note this as well, and it might be a point to address later. Imagine the scrutiny of the inspection of these animals to take the best and the very best of the best and then to take that same animal that stands out all among the rest that they have, to take that animal and completely burn it up so that nobody gets any part of it at all. Not any of it. It all goes up to God. The very best animal and you destroy all of it. Now another author noted this, when you think about the which is most vital for salvation. Is it the life of Christ? Is it the death of Christ? Well, he noted that the that the life of Christ, or rather the death of Christ, unfolded in hours. From the trial, to the beatings, to the nailing, the death of the cross took less than 24 hours. But to become that sacrifice took 33 and a half years of preparation. Perfect for 33 years to spend six hours on the cross. And so to think, as many people do, that we would be good enough to go to heaven is such a preposterous suggestion that men in white coats ought to come and carry us away. And in fact, the Bible says that's exactly what will happen. There will be angels in robes of righteousness and white righteousness that will come and take away every person who thinks he's good enough to get into heaven on his own. And he'll take, they'll take them to everlasting destruction. And then further we think about this. Uh, Gary told me a couple of weeks or so ago, left me a, uh, something on my desk about, uh, it was a survey of some sort from one of the magazines, I don't remember which one, but it, it showed that most evangelical Christians, most evangelical Christians believe there is something they can do to earn their salvation. And then narrowing that field a bit, you have Baptists who believe that faith is able to arise from a blackened, dead heart. That a clean thing comes out of an unclean thing. Now, here's my question. Show me a sacrifice in the Old Testament that pictures that. Did I tell you the Old Testament symbols confirm our doctrine? Christ lived a perfect life. He died a cruel death to deal with this horrible sin question. And so he didn't die to confirm and to make sure that you understand you have a choice of salvation. Oh, Christ died to give you more than a choice. If you think that the Son of God would go through all of this on the chance that somebody would believe in him, then you have missed the powerful, effective, sovereign work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me make a final comment before ending the message. Uh, you know, I enjoy this study. I enjoy preaching sacrifices. Very important. Here's another quote for you. For a Christian rightly to know the differences between these shows that he has learnt more than one lesson in God's school. And indeed, it's one mark, a mark not to be mistaken, of the present low estate of the mass of Christians that so many of them never seem to apprehend the differences which God sees. And he's referring to these sacrifices. That was written more than 150 years ago. And what do you think that man would think of the present state of Christianity? Do you know that most people sitting in Christian churches have never heard a word of what I've just told you? Haven't heard a word of this. And would it surprise you that most Baptists who disagree with doctrines of grace are never found arguing their points from these scriptures? Not from here. 
Now, if you've been here from the beginning, I'm talking about going all the way back to the time that, you know, years ago when we first started preaching on these kinds of things, you know, nobody had any knowledge of tabernacle types. No sermons were preached on these types of things. The only part that you got was the beginning of the sermon. That is, Christ is apprehended in the sin offering. And you might not even have known it was the sin offering in the technical terms from the book of Leviticus. But you did understand this. Oh, Christ died for sin. We know that. That's what we learn. But then how do we, how do we deal with how all the other offerings that are made? How do those fit? How does the institutional order and the applicational order of the offerings differ? And why does it differ? A long time ago, a man came to me after the Tabernacle Sermon Series, and he said, I want to know the Bible better. How can, how can I learn how to fit all of these things together? And I looked at him, and I asked him, how much time do you spend reading and studying the Bible? And he said, I don't have much time. And I said, you're never going to learn it. You'll never be able to do it. So I encourage you, do more than listen to me. I'm not going to tell you to go out and buy 20 books on sacrifices. But I mean, take your notes, take the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament, go back over these things. And I'm really happy to hear that some of you have told me that you go home, you discuss sermons with your family. Some of you don't take notes, that's your choice. But what do you remember in a month? What, what, what still sticks in your mind? I don't give tests. God does. I don't give tests. So the test is, how much have you learned? How much do you retain? How much of the Word of God actually controls your life? So it's hopeless for anybody to think that they could go a half hour without sinning, much less 33 and a half years without the Word of God in your heart. That's an impossible thing to do. What the Savior did, friends, should make a lasting impression on those who claim him as their own. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what we learned here by just looking in closer and, and seeing what you did and how these things work together to give us a, a complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so much more to learn. We see in the, in the many, many verses that we read tonight that there's, there's an, an order... There is a thing that's done. There is a movement that's accomplished. There is blood that's applied here and there. And there's sacrifices outside of the camp. And there's sin confessed on the head of animals. It's steps and steps and steps and steps. How are we going to know what those mean until we look into your word and fit these things together through that diligent study? We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do that. May our people be those who love the Word of God and love to study its meaning to love, to find out more about Christ. Bless us in this endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web 
at www.bebaptist.org.